coming up on the green from Delaware Public Media. If you plan on having some fun in the sun at the beach this summer, you may want to book a place to stay ASAP. Reservations are far outpassing last rate, last year's rate, and renters are really acting early. Contributor Eileen Dalabrita offers a look at the beach rental landscape this year. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. We also examine the state of union membership and delve into how colleges are handling the shortage of prescription stimulants to treat ADHD and other conditions. Plus, Arts Playlist focuses on a new multi-purpose performance center in Delmar. It's all next on The Green, where Delaware gets tuned into a first state of mind. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to this week's edition of The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. The burst of winter weather this week may make summer vacation feel a long way off. But if you're planning to get away to the beach later this year, now is the time to book where you'll stay. In recent years, rental costs have been higher, but that has not deterred people from booking at the beach. So what does the beach rental landscape look like for 2024? Contributor Eileen Dalabrita takes a closer look in her latest piece at DelawarePublic.org, and she joined me this week to offer her insight on where things stand. So just how hot is the beach rental market this year? From your reporting, it sounds like now is the time to book if you want to get what you want. It is indeed. Reservations are far outpassing last rate, last year's rate, and renters are really acting early. And already, there's a shortage of properties that are available from mid-June to late August. So if you can get a place that you want, what's the cost look like? How are rates compared to recent years when, I recall, things were kind of going up a little bit? Well, the good news is that most rents are holding steady or increasing only slightly, maybe $100 a week. Um, the But the reality is that if you have if you're looking for a place that is large, near a walkable community, and especially the ocean or the bay, you're going to pay a lot of money. Uh, I'll give you a for instance here, a canal front home in North Shores that had very nice, two living rooms, a wet bar with an ice machine, an elevator, and a private pool is $17,000 a week in prime season. And... Um, only the first week in May is available right now. And um, in Cape Shores on the Bay in Lewis, a big house that sleeps 13 is priced at 15500 a week. And it is book solid all the way into fall. So there is limited opportunities, particularly for those kind of much desired spots uh, along the bay and the ocean. One thing you do note in your story is that because the rental market is strong, uh, people should not expect landlords to be in a compromising mood. What does that mean when it comes to renting? Well, indeed, landlords are firmly in the driver's seat and they are renting their properties in one week blocks. It's not like years where demand wasn't strong and uh, maybe they would rent it for a weekend or three days during the week, but the one week minimum is standing firm. And if you want less than a week, you might have to go through Airbnb or 
take your chances with a vacation rental by owner. I was going to say, you know, with the limited number of those kind of key pricier spots, are there some other options nearby that could suit people's needs? Are Airbnbs or other things a, a way to go if you're not able to to get that prime real estate? Well, yeah. I mean, if um, if you're especially if you are willing to go further afield, further from the beaches, further from uh, nightlight, you can find much lower rents. In, uh, in Broadkill Beach, a four-bedroom house with, um, with, with some water views and near the nature preserve is still available for 3200 a week in August. And um, in Sleepy Selbyville, a three-bedroom townhome is available for between 1500 and 2000 a week. And, and also, the big bargain as always, is Delaware State Parks that offer some of the best values around with uh, two-bedroom cottages at uh, Seashore State Parks, Indian River Marina, renting for three sixty-three a night on weekends during the peak of the peak season and $238 a night on weekdays during peak season. And even though they typically fill up a year in advance, there are some cancellations, so check them out. And campers can also get a deal with um, sites to pitch a tent or hook up the RV. So uh, we've, we've talked about this previously as well. If you can't afford the full week, right, or maybe, maybe camping is not your thing, um, are there other ways to book a long weekend or a shorter uh, than a week type of stay, or maybe even like go to a day trip idea. Uh, what are some options there for people who just maybe just want to get a little taste of the beach? Well, day tripping is a is a cherished tradition in uh, in Delaware. If you're w- willing to brave the traffic, load up the kids and go. Um, but if you do want to stay and you only want to stay for a couple of days. There are a, a lot of uh, listings available through Airbnb and VRBO. Um, in uh, Dewey Beach, there is a two-bedroom cottage that rents for four sixty-one a night in July, in July, and they're giving a discount if you lock it up early—an early bird discount. And um, through um, VRBO. There in downtown Lewis, there's a, a really lovely one-bedroom apartment in the historic district, and that is renting at three seventy-eight a night. Are hotels an option? Hotels are a great bet if you um, if you want to take a last-minute trip or you want to go for just a couple of days, maybe get a few days of pampering at the Belmore. There's a new hotel, uh, Coast Hotel, a 60-room boutique hotel uh, that opened last year on the site of the old Sandcastle Motel. And the Sands in Rehoboth is right on the boardwalk and has free parking. And that's that's often um, a great place to really get close to the ocean if you just want to be there for a day or two. And are, are they likely to be the option for you if you're not booking now that if you were trying to maybe book later or make that last minute decision sometime in the summer to, to, to run down to the beach? Absolutely. Um, and I think that if you uh, for, get, a rela- get a relationship with a, with a rental agent 
and um, say, can, can, you, can you keep me in the loop in case something pops up and be very specific about what you want and what you want to pay and, um, and hang in there. It, it might work out. So how about amenities? I mean, are landlords offering much more than, you know, the roof over your head and a place to sleep uh, considering the way the market is? And, and, you know, how hard is it to find a pet-friendly place, which I know a lot of people want to do? Well, about 70% of rentals at the beach provide bicycles, including kids' bikes, although uh, lots of folks who ride the trail prefer to bring the, bring their own. But um, if you want to go for a ride with, with, with the kids, it's likely that you're going to be able to do that. And some places sweeten the deal with free movie rentals to keep folks occupied during rainy days. Pet-friendly rentals are highly desirable and landlords are responding to that. We're seeing a lot more uh, landlords who allow their guests to bring Fido and Fluffy with them. So you also mentioned in your piece that uh, if you have the means to buy at the beach, Delaware may be a good option. Why is that? Well, um, the Casa, which is a vacation home rental platform, ranked Rehoboth as the fourth best market in the nation for owning a second home. Uh, that's available for short-term rentals. And that's because you can rent that that house for a lot of money. And uh, uh, typically almost $59,000 a year. And that really helps out with those mortgage payments. I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it seems like maybe even those who have bought a, a home for their own personal use, look at the kind of prices that are out there for rentals and, and probably say, hey, you know what, maybe there's a few weeks I do want to rent it and I'll stay home to make sure that I can, as you mentioned, you know, get a little money toward that mortgage payment. Sure. Not everybody has the, the time to spend every day during the summer um, at, their, at their, their beach house. And so a lot of people are opting to rent them. Thanks to contributor Eileen Dalabrita for her time on The Green this week. Her piece on summer beach rentals is available at DelawarePublic.org. And stay with us. We sit down with an expert on labor union rates to discuss recent unionization efforts and where union membership currently stands. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media. listening to The Green on Delaware Public Media, and I'm Tom Byrne. U.S. workers who belong to a union fell last year to 10 percent, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That marks only a slight decline from 10.1 percent a year earlier. But experts say if there was a year to expect the unionization rate to increase, it was 2023, which saw successful walkouts by Hollywood actors and writers, service employees, auto workers, and healthcare professionals. In Delaware, about 600 unionized cleaners secured a new contract following a November protest in downtown Wilmington. And workers at a Wells Fargo bank branch in Wilmington are also filing for a union election after Wells Fargo employees in Albuquerque, New Mexico, became the first at a major U.S. bank to unionize in decades. 
This week, Delaware Public Media's Kyle McKinnon sat down with Jake Rosenfeld, a sociology professor at Washington University, St. Louis, who recently wrote about labor union rates to talk more about union efforts and membership going forward. Jake, we're talking today about labor movements and unions. You recently wrote that the share of U.S. workers who belong to a union fell slightly to 10% in 2023 from 10.1% a year earlier. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And we'll get to this more in a bit, but considering the year unionization efforts had, and I'd say that's a little surprising, even if we are just talking about a 0.1% drop. You did say, though, that you're not necessarily shocked by the minute decline. So let's start there. What do you make of the figures we're talking about coming off of the, the big union unionization year we just saw? So yeah, the 2023 numbers that just came out indicated a very slight decline down to just around 10%. And we've been hovering right around 10% for five to six years now. Um, but as you noted, right, 2023 was supposed to be the year of labor. We had high profile successful strikes in Hollywood auto, among auto workers and others. Uh, we had that high profile near strike with UPS workers that ended in an extremely generous contract. We've had survey after survey now indicating very high levels of public support for unions in general, kind of the highest levels in over half a century, and support for some of the ongoing labor actions in particular. And then importantly, in terms of the organization rate, we had the continuation of new organizing drives at companies like Starbucks and Trader Joe's. So on the one hand, if there was ever a time to believe uh, that we'd see a real increase in the unionization rate, it was last year. Uh, but we didn't. Um, and I think that stalled growth points to just the enormous difficulty in organizing at scale in the private sector in this country. And when we say 2023 was full of successful unionization efforts that, you know, that might be putting it lightly. Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and you wrote about this, um, the AFL-CIO is the nation's largest labor federation comprised of 60 unions. Uh, Liz said of 2023 that it's the year of labor. We saw walkouts by Hollywood actors and writers that got a ton of eyeballs. You mentioned, I think you just mentioned Starbucks and, and, and UPS. There was also Trader Joe's that was successful too. But um, can, you, can you tell us more about that that year of labor, though, and, and why we saw so much successful and somewhat simultaneous labor organizing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and we're still sifting through some of the evidence, but we do know that successful labor actions tend to prove contagious. Uh, and so a, a strike victory in one industry in one place sends a signal to other organized workers and other unions out there that now maybe is the time to strike and to gain uh, substantial increases in wages and benefits. And you also had the backdrop um, of a very strong economy. Uh, and what that does is provide workers some cushion uh, to take risks at the workplace, whether that means joining a new unionization drive or walking out, you know, striking among already organized workers, uh, risks that aren't as that uh, wouldn't be as substantial, uh, given that there were, you know, other outside employment opportunities compared to periods of an economic downturn. I'm interested in coming back to that, but in terms of well, let's break down why all that successful labor organizing in 2023 didn't boost the the growth of workers who belong to a union. Our economy grew by 4.9 percent in the third quarter of last year and gained three million jobs over the course of all of last year. You wrote that when the overall labor force grows, unions must recruit new members just to maintain the prior union unionization rate. So can you can you walk us through that and the impact of our workforce growth? 
So somewhat paradoxically, a kind of red hot economy means that unions have to organize more workers mm. this year than last simply to maintain its unionization rate. Uh, so you can kind of uh, do a thought experiment, pretend you had an island nation at, in 2022 at 100 workers and 10 of them belong to a union, 10% unionization rate. Uh, let's say that an uh, island economy uh, grew to uh, 110 workers the next year in 2023. To maintain that 10% unionization rate, now unions must organize 11 workers. Now, scale that up. In 2023, our economy added about 3 million new jobs, uh, meaning that in order to maintain last year's unionization rate, unions would have to organize hundreds of thousands of extra workers. Wow. Uh, and they did, but they didn't do quite enough to maintain to match the overall growth in the labor force. I've read that private unions tend to focus on job security and wages, while public unions are more centered on improving work conditions. I'm curious, is that accurate? And also, how do union like membership rates break down between the private and the public sectors? Like, What does that look like? Sure. I'll take that second part first. There's a massive divergence. And when you think of organized labor in the U.S., you want to think of it as two different dynamics. First is the private sector, where the unionization rate is actually far lower than our overall unionization rate. It's about 5 to 6% right now. And that's a century-level low. Uh, and it's important to keep in mind that you know 85 to 90% of the workforce works for a private sector firm. In the public sector, government employees, teachers, firefighters, cops, and the like, the unionization rate is right around um, a third, 33% or one in three public sector workers belongs to a union. Uh, so when we talk about the overall unionization rate and how low it is historically, it's really then a story of what's been happening in the private sector and the difficulties of organizing the private sector over time. Now, in terms of whether what you know private sector unions versus public sector unions tend to focus on, I wouldn't say there's as much as a, a discrepancy as as you described. For one thing, a lot of the major unions um, organize workers in both sectors simultaneously, and oftentimes ask for the same things at the bargaining table. Interesting. Well, um, you know, then you also wrote about the stalled momentum piece of this, and you just touched on it a bit ago. We know it can be incredibly difficult to maintain these labor movements. The repercussions for workers, as you again said earlier, for workers who join unions are very real. It's a massive commitment. Those repercussions are, aren't quite the same as they were in the past, but they're still very real today. Is there any way to get past the stalled momentum piece of this? It seems like something that's always just going to it's always going to you know, exist in some form and, and inadvertently or advertently hold back labor unions and you know, movements. Yeah, that's a great question and a very difficult one to kind of um, work through. You know, in the United States, if you want, if you're an or a union organizer and you want to organize Starbucks, for example, or Walmart, uh, you don't simply sit down with the CEOs of those companies and then take a vote of all Walmart workers or all Starbucks workers. Um, you have to go store by store by store. Every single one of those uh, battles is oftentimes incredibly contentious and very costly. Uh, and you're talking about when you're talking about Starbucks, you're talking about a dozen workers, maybe up to 20 in a you know real uh, popular location. But that's not enough to, to move the dial unless you can aggregate that uh, with wins after wins after wins. Um, and that's the break that labor has yet to quite catch in the private sector. The Starbucks campaign, I think, is very illustrative here. Over 300 Starbucks um, have voted to organize. 
And I think what union organizers and supporters behind them were hoping was that that would spread like wildfire. And it did for a little bit, but then it got bogged down. The company fought back. And what's really important here, uh, as I note in the piece, is that not one of those Starbucks has successfully negotiated a contract. And that's what you really need, I believe, um, for a unionization drive to really catch growth and to really take off. Uh, because it it convinces non-union workers that the risks of an organizing campaign might be worth it when you can wave that union contract around. And companies know this, and that's why they fight against it so hard. In today's political climate, people associate or seem to associate the Democratic Party as supporters of unions. That was not at all always the case if you zoom out um, at the history of, of, of unions and, and politics. But you know, when we when we see big years like 2023 or just this the shift in labor um, union membership, do we see that kind of go hand in hand with who is in political office or who is the controlling party uh, at a national level, let alone a local one? Do we see that as a as a hand in hand shift, or are those not related or as much related as people might think? Yeah, it's a great question. I think they are related. Uh, certainly, um, you know, really since FDR, the Democratic Party has been the party more associated with organized labor uh, compared to the Republican Party. And we saw it last year. Uh, president Biden is the first sitting president to actually walk a picket line. Uh, he did so in the UAW auto workers strike. Um, and it was telling that the what looks like to be the nominee on the Republican side also visited a, a auto workers plant during that strike. But it was a non-union plant. Uh, and that gives you, a, I think, a you know, a real sense of how the parties align when it comes to support for organized labor in the U.S. And part of the kind of successes that organized labor has had over the last couple of years, and they've been real, even if they've not really translated into substantial increases in the overall density rate, has to do with personnel changes in the administration changes that we tend to see during Democratic administrations compared to Republican ones. Well, let's wrap up then. You, you write that without any changes to the nation's labor laws that get more employers to bargain in good faith and to do so speedily, it's reasonable to expect to see companies continue to delay and disrupt attempts to negotiate. As a result, even another very good year for labor won't translate into substantial gains in the ranks of union members. So, Jake... What do you expect in the year that is 2024? We're always seeing some uh, unionization efforts make headlines to start this year. But, you know, what do you expect um, from this year? And, and, and essentially just going forward, are we going to see potential steps forward or standing pat, which seems to be the case? Yeah, I know it can sound like a very pessimistic take, but I would, you know, I would say the standing pat is probably the most likely scenario. Um, having studied this issue and organized labor's attempts to kind of grow for a long time, I think absent something substantial in the set of laws that govern collective bargaining in the private sector, it is just pretty insurmountable to make major gains. That said, even maintaining the status quo, I think, um, uh, uh, is is pretty impressive, given all the the kind of tools that employers have to fight off organized labor in private sector firms. Thanks to Washington University St. Louis sociology professor Jake Rosenfeld and our Kyle McKinnon for joining us on The Green this week. Next up on The Green, a look at why allergies may seem worse this year in Delaware. 
This is The Green on Delaware Public Media. Welcome back to The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Since 2022, the United States has faced an ongoing shortage of Adderall and other prescription stimulant medications used to treat conditions like ADHD and narcolepsy. The issue is specifically challenging for colleges and universities where many students rely on prescription stimulants to help them focus and manage their workload. Delaware Public Media's Quinn Kirkpatrick recently caught up with Gregory Cooper, Associate Director of Psychiatric and Addiction Services at the University of Delaware's Center for Counseling and Student Development to learn more about the prescription stimulant shortage on college campuses and how UD is working with students to address it. In your experience working at the center, how prevalent is ADHD at UD and on college campuses in general? These are always interesting questions because what people think is the prevalence and what the actual prevalence is are two different things. Um, UD and other campuses are no different, I think, than you, you know, the prevalence in the United States. So, you know, it's a small percentage, uh, you know, a single digit percentage. I don't think University of Delaware is any different than any place else in the incidence of ADHD, the actual diagnostic incidence of ADHD, not the perception that I can't concentrate for a whole host of other reasons. And with that, what unique challenges do students with ADHD face in college? I think college is also typical of the overall challenges that students face in life who have ADHD. College is unique in that there is a great deal more autonomy. The pace of the work and the intensity of the work goes up in linear fashion, and there's opportunity to branch out socially, and students can do things that they wouldn't necessarily do when they're living at home. So all of those things conspire together to maybe work with or highlight or to exacerbate the underlying symptoms of ADHD, the inattentive symptoms, the hyperactive and the impulsive symptoms of ADHD. And so the context of college, I think, and the environment can uniquely kind of fan the flame of those core symptom clusters. And if students had not developed or have not developed good coping skills and study skills and behavior patterns to manage impulsivity, then the freedom, the intensity, and all the opportunity that college affords can have negative impacts. So stimulants like Adderall and Vyvanse are often prescribed to treat ADHD. Are you able to speak on why that is? I guess the simple answer would be they're prescribed because they work. (laughs) Um, You know, certainly there's people that say that that's not the case, but everything in psychiatry is a hypothesis because, you know, we observe these behaviors. Uh, We use self-report, we use behavior rating scales, we use quantitative tests to try to measure the core symptoms that we see that kind of makes up the constellation of the symptoms that are ADHD. And so, you know, to say the stimulant does this and we can prove that, we can't do that in all of psychiatry. Like if I give a blood pressure medicine, I can measure the blood pressure trending down or not trending down. I can get a quantitative measure, right? I can see how well that medicine is working. It's a little different. It's a little broader 
and mental health in general. But, you know, the prevailing hypothesis about ADHD is that it's a dopaminergic problem in the prefrontal cortex. And so stimulants are robust dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, meaning they cause more of those neurotransmitters to be available in the entire brain, but most specifically in the prefrontal cortex, which translates into greater selective and sustained attention, which are the two components of the inattentive cluster, lower hyperactivity and less impulsivity. And so, you know, that has been seen, you know, since the 60s probably. And so that's why stimulants are used. There are other medications non-stimulant medications that are used for ADHD that also work, but that's why stimulants are used. For over a year now, there's been a shortage of prescription stimulants. Have you heard any student concerns about being able to access their medication because of the shortage? So the shortage of stimulants, I think we always ebb and flow with certain medications in psychiatry. I think maybe more than other medicines, except for like some of the weight loss medicines that are out now and and things that are really hot medicines. But in psychiatry, we ebb and flow with medicines often, and stimulants are probably at the top of that list. So even before the pandemic, which caused some of the things I'm about to talk about, there are factors that affect the availability of stimulant medication. And so insurance formularies, what they allow the people that are covered under their program to be prescribed is a limiting factor. And Supply chain issues. When uh, medicines that are branded medications go to generic, there's always a gap when the generic companies are ramping up their production and the insurance companies are no longer covering the branded medication. So, you know, we're in this unique situation right now with Vyvanse, which went generic just a few months ago. Then, you know, you add on that the pandemic just exacerbated those factors there has been an increased demand for stimulants as people have struggled during the pandemic with motivation, with selective and sustained attention. I'm calling the symptoms, you know, on purpose, you know, highlighting the symptoms and not necessarily the diagnosis, you know, because a lot of people are talking about these kind of pop-up telehealth things that are kind of, there's there's much more demand. And there's, there has been a supply chain issue for a whole host of reasons, a fire in this plant, covid in another plant that are all overseas that cause huge breaks in the supply chain. And then in COVID, there was just all the other supply chain issues as well, like shipping the medication to where it needs to be and such. So all of those things conspire together. Well, and the other thing is there's a, a lot of pharmacies that are closing now, like around campus, Main Street Walgreens, Rite Aids, all around campus, you know, they're consolidating their, their operations. So all of these things uh, conspire together to make it more challenging to get stimulants. So concerns are always there because of the things that we've talked about. We have to move things around, but yeah, that's, this has become a normal part of our lives as prescribers where we are, we send it to a pharmacy. They don't have it. You know, the patient has to call around to find who has it. Sometimes the pharmacy will tell them other times they won't. So we have to send it and see. Sometimes we send it to three or four pharmacies before we find out who has it in stock. So it does cause some delays because there's communication back and forth with the prescriber and we're seeing patients, right? And so that's challenging, but it's become like a normal part of doing business now, unfortunately. I will say it's gotten better since the the pandemic, but little things will pop up like when medicines go from brand to generic that were the normal things from the past, but now just more highlighted after the pandemic. 
And you mentioned pharmacies closing near campus, including the Walgreens on Main Street. And pharmacies closing across the state in general may also put a strain on the ones remaining. But is there anything else about being on a college campus that makes accessing prescription medication more difficult? Yeah, transportation. (laughs) You know, proximity. So, you know, Main Street is a hub for UD and everything else is pretty much on the periphery of that hub. So Main Street is very accessible to all students that are on campus. There are others that are close in walking distance, in quotes, really better in biking distance. And then, you know, there's some that are in driving distance. But, you know, when you lose one or two, that's a significant decrease in accessibility. So it really is transportation driven. The student has to go to an off-campus pharmacy. They either have to find somebody, a friend to take them, catch an Uber, cost money, or take a bus, which then costs time. So all of those things are important commodities. So if a student can't access their medication, particularly prescription stimulant, for any of the reasons you highlighted, what are some of the effects that they may experience because of that? And what are some of the ways they can kind of deal with those effects? So one thing I would say is that at the Center for Counseling and Student Development, we try not to let access from finances or from transportation be a barrier. And so we have funds that we are able to use to help students to get a ride, to pay for co-pays, not just for stimulants, but for all the medications that we prescribe. So that's a service that's I think is really nice that we are able to do. It's called the Connor Mullen Fund that we utilize. And just qualify this, you know, ADHD exists on a continuum. And, you know, there are folks that have very severe symptoms and there are folks that have less severe symptoms. If you don't have access to your medication and you have been on this medication, let's say since you were a child or even recently, and it has had a robust effect and you are now able to sit down when you want to start the material, when you want to stay dialed into the material, when you want to, for as long as you want to, and then you can't do that, that causes significant disruption or can cause significant disruption to your learning, to your grades, which then cascades to future, you know, hopes and dreams and broader mental health concerns then because of anxiety, stress, depression, things like that. So that's a worst case scenario. Ideally, people who are on stimulant medication would also be in therapy, learning skills and techniques to manage behaviors. Okay. So hopefully we don't lose that part of it. And that's not always the case, but it's not the total fix in a situation, but it certainly is helpful. When students can't get their medications and they're high on the other symptom clusters like hyperactivity and impulsivity, you know, students are at more risk for accidents from the impulsive cluster and they're at more risk for disruption in social relationships. Hyperactive impulsive clusters, typically that's where they'll manifest in the college age, if people have them. As people get older, those two symptom clusters actually go down. But if they persist, they cause, you know, disruptions in social relationships, which then, you know, has significant impacts at this particular developmental stage. So those are some of the things that can happen if they're not able to get their meds. It's pretty rare when we can't get people medication to help them. Let's say even if we didn't have the ability to give a stimulant for whatever reason, this would be pretty rare that that would be the case. 
we might be able to give other things that could help. But if they weren't, it could be very problematic. So because of the shortage and other factors limiting access to ADHD medication, some patients have turned to other sources. So this includes things like buying counterfeit pills, borrowing medication from friends and family, or even turning to other drugs or substances that could have a similar effect. And you mentioned that UD is doing a lot to ensure that students can access their prescribed medication, but are you using any other harm reduction strategies to avoid any negative outcomes students may see if they do go down any of these other paths? The other thing that I didn't say is that, you know, students who have ADHD longitudinally from when they're small children up through adolescence, college age, are at a significantly greater risk for substance abuse disorders and substance use disorders. And so, you know, losing that medication could exacerbate that problem. So finances for us is not a, a barrier. It's much more access to a certain medication. And there are several, there, there's a high redundancy in stimulant medications. You know, there are a lot of other choices, older medicines that we can use if we need to. I, I cannot remember a time when we weren't able to find a suitable alternative in a situation. And I think the most significant issue on campus is taking somebody else's medicine. You know, just because it works for you doesn't mean it's going to have that effect on your friend. So, you know, there's a lot of education that goes into harm reduction strategies when we prescribe the medicine. And when we prescribe medications, things that we also do, we have Uh, worries, and regularly, randomly, we do drug tests. Thanks to Gregory Cooper, Associate Director of Psychiatric and Addiction Services at UD Center for Counseling and Student Development, and our Quinn Kirkpatrick for taking time to join us on The Green this week. And we wrap up The Green next with Arts Playlist and a look at comedian Dan Bell's new Dream Big Performing Arts Center in Del Mar. You're listening to The Green on Delaware Public Media. Thanks for spending time with us on The Green this week. I'm Tom Byrne. Comedian Dan Bell's new multi-purpose performing arts center in Del Mar opened for its inaugural season in early January and has been drawing sellout crowds. The Dream Big Performing Arts Center mainly hosts stand-up comedians but hopes to offer a variety of performing acts in the near future. And in this edition of Arts Playlist, Delaware Public Media's Carl Engel is joined by R.J. Jackson, one of several regional comedians working with Bell to book Dream Big, to discuss the new center. It started with the idea of doing pretty much all stand-up because all the people involved in this project are stand-up comedians. But then we thought, what if we offered a variety of different things? And so far those varieties have been essentially based on the art of comedy in one way, shape, or form. Um, Like, for instance, we had Dan Gaffney here a couple weekends ago. And first off, that was such a cool show. He's a mentalist. You know, I've seen a lot of magicians before. I've I've seen mentalists on YouTube and on Netflix and stuff like that. So I'm expecting this guy's coming to Del Mar. 
I'm not sure what to expect. When he left, we spent the night hanging out in the club, just myself and the rest of the staff were hanging out in the club, just figuring out what was it? How did he do that? That doesn't even make sense. There's no way he could have known that. And it was really cool. The the interesting part about it, which I wasn't expecting, was even though we didn't advertise it as a comedy show, Dan Gaffney's a funny person naturally. So the variety so far has been there is a baseline of humor added in there regardless. You know, the night after that, we had a game show, which was crazy. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about the details on your show about what the theme of the game show was, but it was uh, really interesting and fun. And, you know, that show was I knew that one was based in comedy because there were like 10 to 12 comedians on stage. So I kind of knew what I was in for there. But again, it was another pleasant surprise. So a lot of stand up, a lot of in between shows. I know in March we have a uh, hypnotist coming who travels all around the U.S. And kind of like Dan Gaffney, I don't know what to expect, but I have seen a lot of this guy's videos and I've seen a lot of the other comedy clubs that he's been booked in. Rave reviews all around for that guy. Where did this all come from? I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, we, we were talking about an overnight success here. You've had some great weekends so far, sold out performances. So everybody's thinking, wow, this is great. These people just came out of the blue. no. <laughs> this this has been underway for over a decade and i'm guessing it, it isn't because the comedians all sat together and it took 10 years because generally when you get together you just want to sit around and top each other all night nothing ever got done <laughs> but no there was an active pursuit of this space and making this happen tell us a little bit about the history of where this came from there is a company called Mooncat Comedy. They're a 501c3 run by a gentleman named Tom Sherman. And he started the com the charity with the idea to have the best support comics can look for. You know, a lot of times when it comes to comedians in new scenes or comedians traveling to different places to try to hit mics. Uh, for instance, if I wanted to go to Austin, Texas tomorrow, which is one of the current biggest comedy scenes in uh, the world, I would have to learn from scratch where everything is, who people are, get connected, stuff like that. So the long-term goal and idea with uh, Mooncat is to one day find a way to branch out all over the U.S. and connect all these different faces and give people more of a blueprint of like, here, you could go here and they have spots open here and introduce them to new comics and that kind of stuff. Mooncat has been doing their own shows, uh, performing their own shows all over Delmarva for over a decade now. And they've been doing that to give comedians a better shot and to bring comedy to the community. I mean, I think their, their mantra is something along the lines of comedy to the community and community to the comedy. And what they've done is in the past, they would show up somewhere, they would hire a bunch of comics, they would put them in front of good crowds, and they would produce shows like, you know, a lot of other producers, but it's gotten further than that. They've done so much for this scene in particular, and including putting an open mic somewhere every Monday for almost a decade. And now that it does not matter where that open mic is, the open mic has to go, and that's it. So the open mic has gone in different venues, different theaters, different garages, believe it or not. And then eventually, 
um, Dan Bell, the owner slash proprietor of Dream Big Venues, he's also a realtor. And Dan Bell met Tom. Tom needed a place to like house all these comedians every Monday. And Dan ended up purchasing this piece of uh, real estate in the town of Del Mar. And so the idea just came like, okay, we'll get all these comics. We'll put them in this room. Finally, we'll have a PA and lights and all that good stuff and a, and a nice environment for them to come to. And that way there wasn't a lot of like hopping around anymore from different place to place, you know, to do the open mics. There's a group of guys and gals that come to this mic every single week. And some of them have been coming to this mic every single week for years. So uh, around August, uh, one day we do this awesome mic. We actually had a couple brand new comics come up that week and it was a packed house. But uh, the next day, the owner, Dan Bell, calls me and he says, dude, we got shut down. Like we can't we can't go in here anymore. We can't do comedy in there anymore. If the town of Del Mar finds out that we're doing it, they're going to get basically the officials involved in some type of way. And it came out of nowhere. And I think there were a lot of different reasons why that happened. But instead of going, uh, you know what, that's it. Let's throw in the towel. We can't do this anymore. I'm going to sell this building. It's no use to me now, you know, whatever they, whatever it may be. But what ended up happening was Dan and Tom had talked forever about one day, we're going to turn this place into an actual comedy club. One day we're going to take this space and we're going to put a bathroom in here and AC, and we're going to fix the ceiling and the floor and redo the walls and the insulation, and we're going to turn this place into a comedy club. But there wasn't, in in my perspective from it, there wasn't like, a, okay, we got to do this right now. What steps are you working on this week? That wasn't a thing yet, because I think everyone was just having so much fun in the building as is. We had heaters and, you know, portable ACs. We were happy, you know. Um, he owned the building, so there's a salon next door. And if we needed to use the bathroom, he'd let us in there. I mean, we weren't pressed on it. No one seemed very pressed on like turning that place into a, a comedy club immediately. But when that happened, that day that they kicked us out, everyone came up with this plan. Now, all of us have day jobs. Some of us have personal businesses that we own and operate ourselves. And, and we had no idea how we were going to get it done. We all went to one of the comedian's garages. And for the next four or five months, that became the new mic place. Without fail, we went there every single week unless something was happening or somebody had, you know, COVID or something like that. And while that was going on, there were like a core group that were working on construction, website, graphic design, booking this thing out, constantly meeting, talking about how do we want to do this, researching other clubs. The goal was January 1st. I don't know how we're doing it. That's when we're opening. We're going to have the first show on January 5th. We set this goal before there was any work done in this club, there was nothing done. We had no money. We had no, we had no idea how any of it was going to get done, but we all came up with this goal and all of us worked really, really diligently every single day, almost no days off for any of us. I mean, we were just go, go, go. But I think that pressure of putting ourselves in that situation, I know sometimes people call it burning the boats. We had everyone there. We knew that if we didn't open, it wasn't only going to disappoint us. It was going to disappoint the town of Del Mar. It was going to disappoint all these comics with like really big credits to their name that you don't want to upset. You don't want to leave a bad impression on them at first. 
And we got the final touches to be able to open and to be able to have crowds in there. No joke, Carl, about 45 minutes before we opened on opening night. That's how close to the deadline we were. What I see in Dream Big is that you now have this kind of grounded opportunity to not only display what you all are doing and open the door to others, but to encourage younger people. Are you looking at young people downstate and going, let's get them into this business? Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest driving factors, if not the biggest driving factors in all of this. And I know it's one of Mooncat's like core missions is to make it easier for a new comic that's never even done stage time before to have a place to have a home to learn the ropes from other comics who've maybe been doing it for a little longer to find opportunities to do paid shows maybe much earlier than you would in your career anywhere else and so this club was built for that core group of comics in the Mooncat you know basically Monday night club that's that's what this place was built for Everybody else is just icing on the cake. Thanks to comedian R.J. Jackson and our Carl Engel for joining us on this latest edition of Arts Playlist. And we've hit the finish line for this edition of The Green. The stories and interviews you've heard are online right now at DelawarePublic.org. Just head to The Green's page on our website. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there by clicking Newsletters at the top of the page. And remember, The Green is also available via podcast at our website, as well as Apple Podcasts and the NPR and Delaware Public Media apps. We'd also like to hear from you. Give us your feedback and story ideas on our Facebook page or by emailing us at thegreen at delawarepublic.org. Thanks to all those who helped make this week's show possible, contributor Eileen Dalabrita. Delaware Public Media's Quinn Kirkpatrick and Carl Engel, and our show producer, Kyle McKinnon. For all of them and the rest of the staff here at Delaware Public Media, I'm Tom Burns saying thanks for joining us this week, and we'll see you again next week on The Green, where Delawareans get tuned into a first state of mind.